Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, Soul Music Authority David Nathan returns, along with Rhino A&R Director Patrick Milligan, to discuss Aretha, the upcoming career-spanning Aretha Franklin box set. So take a good look at my face. You see that my smile seems out of place. And if you look closer, it's easy to trace the Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. As always, joined by our good friend, John Hughes. John, how are you today? I'm good, Rich. How's it going, man? It's going well. It's nice and sunny. We got through that gnarly storm here in Nashville. We got oh. seven inches of rain in one storm, believe Yikes. it or not. Well, it's it's you know nowhere near like that here, so I have nothing to complain about in Southern California. <laughs> well... On the opposite side of complaining about things, we have things to celebrate because there are a couple of new releases that were just announced this week that I think people are going to be really excited about. Now, you know this album, even if you don't know this album, and that is Grateful Dead, the self-titled album, which is more commonly known as Skull and Roses. Now, we have an That's expanded right. edition for the 50th anniversary. It's going to be available as a two-CD set and digitally on June 25th. This includes the album's original 11 tracks, which have been remastered from the stereo analog master tapes by Grammy Award-winning engineer David Glasser. This set also includes a bonus disc with 10 previously unreleased live tracks that were recorded on July 2, 1971 at the Fillmore West, which was the band's final performance at that historic San Francisco venue. A remastered version of the original double LP will also be available the same day on black vinyl with a limited edition black and white propeller vinyl available exclusively at Deadnet. Now, how can there still be unreleased live tracks from the Grateful Dead? Well, you know, <laughs> there is so much archival material. There may be one of the most recorded bands of all time. There's... It's it's amazing. You know, there are pockets of shows that, yeah, weren't recorded or the tapes are missing, but there is an absolutely vast amount of recorded material. And it's pretty interesting because the music from Skull and Roses, a lot of it was taken from the last shows at the Fillmore East. And then this bonus disc now has their last shows at the Fillmore West. So it's kind of a nice bookend. And if it sounds like Rich knows what he's talking about, it's because he does. He's also the host of our good old Grateful Dead cast. If you have not checked that out, make sure you do. That's right. And that's at dead.net slash deadcast. So come on over, check that out. And by the way, that 
propeller version of the vinyl from Skull and Roses is limited to 5,000 copies only. So if you want to get that, you need to jump on it right away because it will sell out. Meanwhile, it's deja vu all over again because it's the 50th anniversary of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's debut, Deja Vu. And Rhino honors the intense creative journey that led to this milestone album with an expansive four CD, one LP collection that includes a pristine version of the original album on both 180 gram vinyl and CD, plus hours and hours of rare and unreleased studio recordings that provide incredible insight into the making of this record. It's presented in a 12 by 12 hardcover book, and this collection comes illustrated with rarely seen photos from the era and annotations from writer-filmmaker Cameron Crowe, whose revealing liner notes recount the making of the album through stories told by the people who were there, including David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Graham Nash, and Neil Young. A 5LP version is also available exclusively at csny50.com and rhino.com. This all comes out May 14th, but it's available for pre-order now. Yeah, and there's been a couple of tracks released in advance, and they sound fantastic. So those are available for streaming now, so you can check those out and get a taste of what you're going to get with all the extra tracks that are being released in this really classic set. It's really for people who have never been exposed to this album and they'll be shocked at just how classic and and amazing it is. But people who have heard this album a billion times are really going to just marvel at these things that have been uncovered in the making of it. Yeah. And the remastering of course is brilliant. It sounds fantastic. Yes. And that's really what's going on at Rhino these days. Well, thank you very much, John. Have a good one, buddy. See you next time. Well, the career-spanning box set Aretha is coming out this summer, and it's available for pre-order now at rhino.com. It's absolutely loaded with great music from this musical icon. This four-CD and digital collection dedicated to the Queen of Soul features 81 tracks, including 19 previously unreleased alternate versions, demos, rarities, and special live performances. There's also a brand new 8-episode anthology series out now produced by National Geographic entitled Genius, Aretha, about Aretha's life and career and is available to stream now on Hulu. And of course, at the time of this episode's posting, it was Aretha's 79th birthday just last week. David Nathan, noted British soul music historian, and Patrick Milligan, A&R director at Rhino, worked together on the creation of the upcoming Aretha box set, and we all sat down for a discussion about this expansive release and Aretha's career. This episode is part one of our conversation. Part two will air next episode. David was personal friends with Aretha and shares the insider info he gathered about the Queen of Soul throughout their friendship. David Nathan and Patrick Milligan, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. We are here, of course, today to talk about this wonderful new Aretha collection. Tell us about the genesis of this box set, which is super extensive and has all kinds of unreleased material on it. 
It does indeed. Well, I think David may go a little further back on this. I, I came back to Rhino in October of 2018 and was pretty immediately met with, we want to get a Aretha playing together. And I think, you know, at that, at that point, there was talk of a box set like this. And really the idea being that with all the Aretha stuff we've done over the years at Rhino, there's never been anything even beyond Rhino that is a complete career retrospective of Aretha Franklin and cross-licensed with every label she ever recorded for. And so something that goes, as they say, cradle to grave and is really like her first recordings as a 14-year-old all the way up to her Kennedy Center performance a couple years back for the Carole King uh, tribute. You know, David, I have to say, being the extremely knowledgeable person about Aretha and a, a friend of hers and everything just really brought his knowledge and expertise to kind of make that fill in and, and kind of put it all together to tell that story and get the full picture. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of love and care that was put into this set. And there are, like I said, a ton of great unreleased recordings on here. David, did you have a bunch of these kind of queued up in your mind already for a dream set that easily flowed from pen to paper on your wish list? The answer to your question is yes. I did have some uh, particular tracks I thought if ever a box set were to materialize there wasn't just a rehash of what's already been done before. There were certain things that if we could include in them, uh, they would be just really great additions uh, to the Aretha Franklin legacy, recorded legacy. And again, to go back when Aretha passed in August of 2018, you know, I was contacted by a person at the time who was in charge of the global marketing for Warner Music Group, uh, which was uh, Tim Fraser Harding in London. And we got into a conversation about doing something on a Reaper. So that was when, at that point, I think Patrick and I, somewhere in, towards the end of 2018 or in that time period, uh, we began having some conversations about some different Aretha projects we could do. It, you know, it took a while to, of course, put it all together. And uh, so, yes, the answer to your question is that, 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 yes, we've been working on this for a while. It is, as Patrick said, the, the first ever complete retrospective on her career starting from 1956, which is phenomenal. I mean, really, and, and, and going, taking us all the way up to what's probably the most memorable performance of the last few years of her life, which was uh, a natural woman at the Kennedy Center Honors uh, in the presence of Carol King and, of course, uh, President Barack Obama and Michelle and so on. So it's, it's you know, it, it was just, for me, it's, it's really been a labor of love, a great deal of joy, and just really an opportunity to forward the legacy of, of an icon. And I, I think part of the goal, too, in putting this together, and something that was a mission for me and David uh, from the beginning, was that we wanted to sort of go a little bit beyond just the music and tell Aretha's story and kind of her position in history. Because, I mean, obviously, she's a, you know, worldwide acknowledged, you know, top class singer, but she also was a civil rights activist and a feminist. And just, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that puts her in the, the context of her time that we really wanted to put across to. And we, and we tried to get historical recordings, some unusual things. Uh, we have her at a Royal Command performance for the Queen. We've got some TV appearances, like David mentioned, we were talking about the Kennedy Center honors her singing My Country Tis of Thee for the Barack Obama inauguration. She actually re-recorded that, that song specifically for that occasion as well, and we've included that. 
So just trying to put her in a bigger historical context beyond just her musical contributions as well. So something that you said earlier, David, was that this isn't a rehash, and it's not a rehash. This isn't just a re-release of something that's already been out. This is a four-CD collection, like you said, that's cradle to grave. It has 81 tracks, including 19 previously unreleased alternate versions, demos, demos, which are great, rarities, and special live performances. And I think that having all of these live performances on this set, of course, she was fantastic in the studio, but really... The rubber hits the road on a live performance and to hear her be so on pitch and vibrant and, and have that phrasing, it's, you can tell it's something that just came out of her and flowed like water. It's amazing to hear these tracks. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I loved about the opportunity to work on this too, uh, yeah, is that we really did get to present some aspects of Aretha's interpretive abilities. In other words, and not just uh, obviously on the original songs that she's well known for, um, such as Daydreaming and um, Call Me and different things that, that people associate with her, obviously. But the, the, the ability, the opportunity the opportunity to put, to have people almost like step into the the private room of here and hearing Aretha, you know, doing demos. I mean, one of the most thrilling parts of this for me was actually being able to include a couple of demos that were from sessions she did. I, I, I'm, I'm going to guess at her home in Detroit in 1966, in the time period after she signed to Atlantic, which was actually in November of 1966. And the time she went in the studio in January of 1967, as Patrick knows, and as I've been happy to share with people, you know, when I was doing some Rhino research, I found this tape box, uh, which just said on it, to Jerry Waxler. Actually, I thought it said Wexler. I've seen the tape box now. It says Jerry Waxler, not Jerry Wexler, uh, <laughs> from Ted White. And it's got a little part of the address of where, where they lived. And it's, it's demos of songs that... They wanted um, Jerry Wexler to hear as possible, you know, what she was working on. And including there were um, a few things that had been released uh, on different uh, packages before. Demo of Dr. Feelgood, demo of I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. But also tucked in there were some things that are making their debut, like My Kind of Town, but not, you know, Frank Sinatra's My Kind of Town now turned into my kind of town, Detroit is my kind of town. Yeah. And, you know, what's what really great about it is you get to hear Aretha giving a shout out to the Four Tops and Smokey Robinson. And it's really, you know, it's just Aretha piano with a, a little rhythm section. They've even got the swinging miracles. I tell you that the Smokey is just too lyrical. They've even got those real red hot Four Tops. So that's one. And then another version of the song, Try Little Tenderness, which she had recorded at Columbia. But this is a demo, obviously, of, of another version of it. Uh, and just kind of a little known fact. Apparently, after Aretha recorded uh, the song at Columbia uh, in, I think, 1962, that was the inspiration 
for Otis Redding to redo it because he heard Aretha's version. They're quite different. But the point being that um, you know these demos really give you an insight into Aretha's creativity, you know, how she approached certain songs, and, and just so thrilling to be able to make that available to people. What did Aretha signing to and working with Atlantic Records afford her that being with Columbia couldn't? Want to say something about that, Patrick? Well, I mean, I because I could give my version, but let's yeah. Well, let's I give mean, both your versions. Well, you're yeah, I'd like to hear David's too because David was a fan then. I mean, David like sort of knew Aretha at the end of her Columbia period, so he was sort of experiencing that real time. I think part of what the difference was that Columbia looked at her in a way that they were trying to groom her as a pop artist. And I don't think they really understood her talent and they didn't really have a foot in the world like Jerry Wexler did of R and B and all the great Atlantic soul and the stuff that they were doing. And I think that Jerry Wexler just saw there's a great talent there that isn't being used in the right way. And then she could be so much more than what, what they're letting her do. So I think, you know, it's just that, sort of genius of Jerry Wexler seeing that talent and being able to cultivate that and make it into what, you know, it obviously needed to be. Yeah. David? There's one thing I would add to that is um, there is some mythology around Columbia and Aretha, which I've been at pains over the years through different uh, articles and and, and things I've written uh, to, to demystify and almost like from Aretha's mouth, so to speak. Her Columbia recordings were not forced on her. She actually, if you study her adolescence, so to speak, musically and what she was listening to in her household, she loved some of those old standards. And that's, she was, she was around people like Dinah Washington. Shockingly for some people, she recorded songs that were made famous by Al Jolson and Judy Garland while she was at Columbia. And so people had this like, oh, Columbia made her do it. No, she loved, this is the stuff she loved. And in fact, even the demos or on the reel that included the, the aforementioned My Kind of Town and Try Little Tennis, there's some other standards like someone to watch over me and different things. So the point, the point I'm making, now that probably didn't, well, she might have loved doing the songs. And I think they gave her a lot more freedom at Columbia than people think they did. But they weren't commercially viable at the time for a 20-something-year-old who... Uh, in other words, she was like being marketed in a sense beyond her years. And I think that what, what Jerry Wexler did, which was very smart and something Aretha wanted at that point to do, but she'd been doing what she liked and what Columbia suggested for all those years, but she hadn't had any really hit, she really had any hits. And meanwhile, she's watching, you know, Mary Wells and the Supremes and Dionne Warwick and women of her own age, you know, group having all these hits and she's not having any. So what Jerry Wexler, I think, was very smart, tuned into her, some of her basic you know, abilities, uh, not just as a singer, but as a musician, uh, you know, accompanying herself. 
that's what he brought out of us. You know, he famously said, all I did was I, I, I took Aretha back to church, but he didn't really take her back to church because she never really left it. But I know what he meant musically. David, um, can I ask you something? Yeah. Um, because that, that seems like a distinction to me, too, between those two eras. Did, did Aretha play piano on any or many of her Columbia sessions? She did. She didn't play on everything. Uh, she did on some, not on, uh, on selected pieces. So she's not on, she's certainly not on piano, playing piano on everything. But isn't that kind of a component of what makes those Atlantic records so special? Yeah. And so like no, you're saying, did, her did. because they're featuring that more yeah. and that's kind yeah. of a, a bedrock of what those records are. And, you know, her piano yeah. playing, which she really doesn't get a lot of credit for, is spectacular. Not at all. Spectacular and, and, is absolutely and, the word. There's no yeah. doubt about and, it. And, and that's actually true. That, that, that's Patrick. That's, that's, yeah, she did play on something. I mean, it'd be inaccurate to say she played on everything. No. But she did on certain things. And, and um, when you look at the credits of her Columbia recordings, you can see which track she played on. But it wasn't the dominant way she was presented. Now, interestingly, though, for those who did get to, to do this, which unfortunately I was too young to be able to do, for those who lived in America during the like mid to late 60s, uh, mid 60s, I should say, when she was on Columbia, people who saw her at nightclubs, which was mainly the place where she places she used to play she usually played piano and she would occasionally get up and stand up uh, and famously was not very comfortable looking at the audience so she would actually kind of sometimes some to some degree hide behind the piano hide when i mean hide i mean play accompany herself so she didn't have to stand in front of people yeah wow interesting the first track on the set, Never Grow Old. How old was Aretha on this one when she sang it? So she was 14. 14 years old. Yeah. The track opens, the piano's slightly out of tune. Is that mm -hmm. her playing piano? I don't think so. Okay. Aretha's perfect voice just cuts through like magic. It's, mm -hmm. it's amazing hearing her, and it's even... That the piano is slightly out of tune, it creates a greater juxtaposition when you hear her and you hear how perfectly formed her vocal style is at 14 years old. It's absolutely mesmerizing. Right out of the gate. I know, it's incredible. It's just, you realize that, you know, a fair amount of her talent is just innate. I mean, obviously very cultivated in the church and the influence of, you know, Mahalia Jackson and Sam Cooke and Smokey Robinson and all the people that she grew up with, but obviously just a freak of nature talent. amazing to me how Aretha was able to emote so powerfully and consistently. And I wonder how hard she did work at that. Or was it like you say, Patrick, was it just an innate God-given talent? I think it's probably got to be a little of both. I mean, obviously she's a very committed musician and she worked really hard at this. And, you know, so I, I think it's, you know, it's like the, the Malcolm Gladwell outliers book, you know, you put in a certain amount of what was it like a thousand hours or something? And, you right. know, I think 
if you have an innate talent and you don't cultivate it, you're not going to be Aretha Franklin. So I think it's hard work to do. Yeah, it must be, it must be. Yeah, the interesting, this is something, I don't know if you know this, Patrick, you probably do. Do you know that Aretha um, never learned to read music? I believe it. I think that's not uncommon in, you know, yeah. modern era. I mean, in other words, everything you hear, like piano, is all instinctive. I mean, obviously she learned melodies, but she didn't uh, actually, re she didn't read music. And as far as singing is concerned, I don't know that she really ever had any vocal coaches. I was, thinking, I was trying to imagine what a vocal coach would do with Aretha. I think later in life, she, when she was trying to do something, yeah, I, was, I think she studied at some point, she, she kept saying she was going to do some classes at Juilliard, but I don't know if she ever did do that, um, which would have been more to do with, um, you know, to, to do with her uh, keyboard virtuosity. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I think a lot of it is instinct. And yeah, there's some, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. I think there's just some people who, you know, they come almost like they come in with the talent already. I mean, it's already there innately. And then, and and she was fortunate in growing up in the in, in the household she did where it was nurtured. Yeah, and I think the fact that you can hear in her piano playing and her singing so much of that gospel influence that that's obviously she's steeped in that culture and that influence of the people that she was around. So it's sort of like you know, shepherding that innate talent into that, that kind of a presentation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as evidenced very completely with Amazing Grace that we saw last year, 2019, it's the 1972 release that got her back to her gospel roots. And there are so many amazing performances and we're so fortunate that they filmed it to be able to see those performances on screen is amazing. her back to make that record at that point in time of her career as far as i know and, and you know it, it was really something she had said she wanted to do and then the circumstances kind of came together to have it work she'd been apparently talking for quite a while with james cleveland about about working on it and, and in terms of timing um God, and what's interesting if you look and, and patrick knows as well uh, you know is the fact she was she had done the Fillmore West album, in, you know, in California, and then and, and here comes Amazing Grace. I think within the same, within a certain period, am I correct? Correct me if I'm wrong, Patrick. Within the same time period of of, of, of recording. Yeah, about a year, of each like other. a year or yeah. so, right? Like right. 71 and yeah. 72, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know why then specifically other than the timing of it and, and, and just... You know, she had by that point racked up so many uh, gold records and she was now, you know, in a position where to, to, you could say not take a chance, but to to do something outside of what she had been doing on record for most of her uh, mainstream audience. So it was almost like she was uh, it became an opportunity for her to to take gospel to an audience that hadn't necessarily grown up with it, as well as the audience that had. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think seeing that movie is just such an incredible treat because we've known that record for, you know, 
close to 50 years. And it's such an incredible record. And it's just her performances are just, you know, so inspiring. And then you see the movie and it's like, wow, I, I'm seeing something I've heard forever. And, and just yeah. to me, I was very taken by her presence and her kind of, she's, I, I, David and I have talked about this. She's almost like, like disconnected or something. It's like, there's, there's none of this kind of, I'm a star, you know, the whole diva side of Aretha or whatever that is, is completely not there. I mean, she's just so in the moment. It's almost like she doesn't even know there's an audience there. And it's mm-hmm. just her presence and her look is so understated, but her performance is. So that's why it's like, when you actually see it, it's like, Oh, it's just, it, it adds a, a whole new dimension mm-hmm. to it. It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. She's a direct conduit to the music. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. For sure. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it because it's just coming through her. And we're talking about this thing of like effort or no effort or something. When you see her, it just it looks so effortless. It's a treat to see it. But it's also just that she's so taking it, you know, it's meaningful to her. And she's not, you know, Mm -hmm. she's not playing it for the for the effect or for the film. You know, I mean, she knows she's being filmed, but she's just very understated in her her Mm -hmm. presentation. I love that you guys chose how I got over for this set from that, because that is my favorite song from, from amazing. Really? Grace. Yeah. Can you guys talk about that one a little bit, please? Well, I can talk a little bit about it, but Tatcha can too, probably. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I, I'd like to hear what David has to say. I think part of that was that when we did the amazing grace, we'd done the extended version several years ago, but then we did it on LP to sort of tie in with the movie and at the time, we were asked, we were sort of working with the movie people promoting, and we had sort of talked about doing some singles. And, you know, everybody kind of went to, well, let's do Amazing Grace as a single. It's like, if you listen to that track, there's no way you can edit that down. So it just, it, it just you know, ruins it. And Rich, unlike you, How I Got Over has just always been one of the standout tracks on that album. Yeah, me. It's, I agree. Just, it's so upbeat and catchy, and it just kind of felt just like, this feels like a single. So we, you know, we, we pulled that out and did that edit. And so I think for this set, partly because there's been so much prominence and, and attention on Amazing Grace, and we didn't want to, you know, excerpt too much from that. We just thought that this single was a good representation of that and, you know, just, you know, shows that, that part of the career. But David, let's hear your take. Well, what I was going to say is more, more about, you know, the, the, the song itself and, 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 uh, and, um, you know, for me, that has always been an outst- one of the standout tracks of the entire original two LP set. And uh, it is actually a Claire Award song. Um, Claire Award was one of uh, Aretha's mentors and, and actually was there at the recording. Um, love seeing her Grace. reaction. Love seeing her yes. reaction in the movie. That's a great yes. moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a fact, just as a lot aside, you know, Aretha says that, um, or said even back then, uh, that the thing that finally inspired her to really want to sing uh, for a living was when she went, she attended some some service with Clara Ward when she was in her you know, early teens. And she saw Clara Ward get so caught up in the emotion. She saw, uh, she saw uh, Clara Ward throw a hat on the floor. Like she was so in it. And that was the moment Aretha says, and this, you know, she's, she's, published that she actually says that was the moment she decided she wanted to sing for a living. You know, this is what she wanted to do. But to go back to how I got over, just very briefly, um, there's a little aside about Clara Ward and 
her influence on Aretha and the song. I personally love the lyrics of the song, you know, my soul looks back and wonders how I got over. Now, I have my own interpretation of that, and I think it's kind of sometimes in life, you know, stuff is not great. And you just say to yourself, I don't know how I, my interpretation, how did I, how did I get through that? And one time, and this is actually true, I had a conversation uh, with Aretha on the phone, and it wasn't an interview, it was just a conversation, and it was somewhere probably a few years before she passed away. She said, how are you? I said, oh, I'm fine. So I said, you know, I was just kind of thinking about uh, some things I'm dealing with. I said, and, um, you know, I think about that song, How I Got Over. My soul looks back and wonders. And, she's, and she didn't ask me what I was talking about. She said, mm-hmm, and that was it. So the song, she understood that the song, while it was about, it was in a gospel context, could also be interpreted as really, you know, how did I make it through whatever this is? Yeah. It's amazing that I made it through, and I did. Yeah, that's great. It's a little David Nathan interpretation there. <laughs> Probably shared by others. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, that, that's what makes a great song great, isn't it? Is that it can be interpreted yes. by different individuals to mean different things and still be mm -hmm. profound. Yes. I think that's part of it, certainly. Well, we did mention Fillmore West. There are quite a few songs from or a few songs on this set from Fillmore West what makes that album different than her other live works because it is different sounding for certain uh, the band the way that they groove is really undeniable and it seems like almost she took a smaller subsection of that band and used them for the gospel recording but King Curtis is on this record playing with her how did they come to work together and how did it affect her when he died shortly thereafter? It is. Well, I think David probably has more insight on that. I mean, but I think just to kind of speak to a point you made is I, I think it's absolutely the reason that record is such a standout is that band. Because it's the Aretha in Paris is, you know, it's a very showy kind of sound. It's just, it's, it's not really, doesn't showcase her well. And this band is just exactly what she needs. And it's just exactly, you know, the 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 vibe and the feel that her songs require. So yeah, that to me, that's why it's a standout. And I think, you know, King Curtis is a big part of that too. So as far as how they began to work together or the effect of that, David would have far more insight yeah. on that, I'm sure. Yeah, well, actually, Aretha working with King Curtis goes back to her first Atlantic album, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. Apart from the one session which she did in uh, Muscle Shoals, the famous I Never Loved a Man, session in which there's just one side and the beginnings of a second side which was do right woman do right man which was not completed uh, and got completed in new york although i'm sure with a new king curtis i don't know that he was on any of her columbia recordings but of course king curtis was a very much a, an, an integral part of the atlantic musical um i wouldn't say house band but he was on a lot of recordings a lot of recordings in the um, mid to late 60s and of course he was an atlantic recording artist himself so you can hear him on a lot of the recordings by um esther phillips and solomon burke all of the new york sessions you would hear king curtis and uh he is prominent on that first atlantic album he co-wrote the song save me one of the standout tracks of course, his song Soul Serenade, which he wrote with uh, mm -hmm. Luther Dixon, songwriter Luther Dixon. That's one of the standouts of that album, too. Um, 
and Aretha brought, it was an, originally an instrumental to which Aretha added lyrics, uh, so serenade. I want to be free to So he was an integral part of her Atlantic recording sessions, uh, really from the first album. And, and you see he's, his name is he's credited on probably the first four or five uh, Atlantic studio albums. So that's the basis of their relationship. And, and, and they just had, in fact, one of, for me, one of the most amazing moments. It's not on this box set because we had to limit what we could put on there because you, otherwise it would have been like a 200 track. Uh, <laughs> box set is Aretha singing um, uh, an old blues by Howlin' Wolf called Going Down Slow, which is on the Aretha Arrives album. And then there's a so King Curtis solo and they're like shadowing each other. She's, she's actually not singing. She's like doing what people call a blues moan to him playing. And there was obviously just an incredible musical chemistry. I'm sure that it um, affected Aretha deeply when he was tragically murdered. And in one sense, he, he was, in, in one, some senses, her musical director on the road. She didn't tour with him all the time. But certainly when they did certain gigs, he was like the guy who you directed everything. And I think it was a big loss, a big loss for her. That was Spirit in the Dark, featuring Ray Charles from the upcoming Aretha box set, and originally from Aretha Franklin's Live at Fillmore West, with just a monster band that included the aforementioned King Curtis, along with Bernard Purdy on drums, Cornell Dupree on guitar, and Billy Preston on organ. We will have part two of this conversation with David Nathan and Patrick Milligan in the next episode of the Rhino Podcast. Make sure to catch Genius Aretha, the highly anticipated series starring double Oscar nominee Cynthia Erivo as the Queen of Soul. Genius is National Geographic's critically acclaimed anthology series that dramatizes the fascinating stories of the world's most brilliant innovators and their extraordinary achievements. This third season explores Aretha Franklin's musical genius and incomparable career, as well as the immeasurable impact and lasting influence she's had on music and culture around the world. Genius Aretha is the first ever definitive and only authorized scripted series on the life of the universally acclaimed Queen of Soul. 
All eight episodes are now available to stream on Hulu. Take care, folks. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.